Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Will Summer. Welcome to the Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at the Daily Beast, and I'm currently working on a book about QAnon called Trust the Plan for HarperCollins coming out later this year. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at the Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Okay, Kelly, obviously the big news this week is that this political report that the Supreme Court has voted to overturn Roe v. Wade. Obviously, this is a fast-moving issue, and there's a lot going on with it. This is sort of the signature triumph of the conservative movement for the past 50 years or so. What were your instant reactions when you saw that? I mean... Beyond just like abject horror, it's weird because we knew this was coming and yet it's such a disastrous ruling for half of the country's population. It was really striking to me to see what the right wing response was, because this is something that they have been openly agitating for. And yet overturning Roe v. Wade is not a popular stance. So not many of them could take the victory lap that they wanted to. And I think what we're seeing is actually a lot of conservatives not celebrating this potential ruling, but instead whining about the leak of this document. Yeah, there's not a lot of, at least if you're kind of like a culture war person, if you're a pundit, if you're a telegram crusader, there's not a lot of like money to be had or attention to get from just being like, we did it, boys. Like, yeah. So you kind of have to look for the victimhood angle. And in this case, it's this idea that the draft opinion was leaked. Now, I will admit, pretty crazy that it was leaked. But at the same time, there's basically been a really strong pivot, I think, from what you might think the reaction would be, which is like, yay, into this sort of like, we got to find the leaker. Oh, totally. And it's just really fascinating to me, the language that they're using, because the right likes to take any liberal dissent and turn it into some kind of dark mirror of their own actions. So they're calling this terrorism. They're calling it insurrection. They're saying this leak is worse than January 6th is going to inspire violence. Which, by the way, we didn't think was that big a deal. Oh, yeah, yeah. January 6th, not a big deal. Antifa did it. If it was us, not a big problem. By the way, if you leak any documents, which might not even be illegal in this case, there's a lot of parsing about whether this was a legal leak or not. But that's worse than killing a cop with a blunt object. Well, I mean, this is like sort of a very comfortable position to be in because it's kind of like it's the Punisher role, right? Like the beloved comic book character, because it's you get to kind of tweet like, oh, we're going to like grind this leaker into pace. So we have Ben Shapiro tweeting like prosecution to the full extent of the law. This idea that kind of the reigning idea is that the leak was not done because I mean, obviously, we don't know who the leaker was. We don't know their motivations. Let's assume here that it was a, a liberal Supreme Court clerk. So I think it's pretty reasonable to think that the leak was done to perhaps tell people what was up or to sort of protest test in, in a way that the ruling you sort of have to understand is the, is the foundational idea here is that this was basically meant to incite the assassination of a Supreme Court justice. So like Ben Shapiro says, there is little question this leak is designed to create threat to the life and limb of any justice who signs
signs on to the opinion. So then we transition into this idea that leaking this this memo or this this opinion is terrorism. And then you have like Don Jr. saying we need this FBI investigation. And then we have Benny Johnson. There's kind of this like brewing witch hunt. And I really would be very surprised. Here's my prediction. I'm going to lay down my marker here. In the same way that after Trump lost the election, we saw people going through the social media accounts of like Dominion voting employees, just anything they could find. And then there's one guy who says, you know, I like protests. And they're like, okay, this guy must have stolen the election. And, and it kind of goes from there. I suspect there's going to be sort of a combing through of Supreme Court clerks' social media. And obviously, these are like the most establishment law students or recently graduated law students you can get. So there probably isn't a ton of material on them. However, I think we're seeing Benny Johnson say like, well, Sotomayor's office is the most radical. And now we see Josh Hawley saying, did the White House see the leaked opinion before Politico published it? So there's a lot of kind of like tendrils of speculation that are already spreading roughly 12 hours after this opinion was released. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, they're already full on QAnoning it, right? I mean, they're not just saying, oh, maybe it's someone in Sotomayor's office. I've seen someone pick a clerk for no reason other than what? I think he was an immigrant or something and speculate that it was him. No reason. Just, you know, that guy. And it's just a complete distraction from the actual substance of that draft, which if you think it really is so defensible, well, it was going to come out in however many months anyway. So the idea that this is incitement to assassinate a Supreme Court judge, this is what they were going to say publicly. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, this is a story we'll be following for months, maybe years, if the ruling looks like it's headed the way it is. But it certainly is interesting seeing, I think, the narrative shape up so quickly to focus on the leak and not the ruling itself. So, Will, it's springtime. People are getting back into lawn work and showing off their gardens. And there's a fellow in Ohio, a congressional hopeful, who's done some really interesting things with his lawn. What is happening there? Sure. So I thought it might be worth checking in on one of our, a character who is perhaps likely to become the third QAnon believer in Congress after Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Introduce him to the gang, the audience here. So basically, this guy's named J.R. Majewski. And we will find out this week whether he wins the Republican primary in an Ohio district, which is currently held by a Democrat, but has been redistricted to be slightly favoring Republicans. I think given the headwinds Democrats are facing in November, I think the it's fair to say that if this guy wins the nomination, he'll be headed to Congress. So J.R. Majewski, kind of a bear of a man. He has a big beard. I've been in this situation of a campaign reporter when you're kind of trying to describe someone's deal. And usually it's this guy's a council member. He's somehow in office, whatever. And then it's like, this guy's a project manager. But in truth, his claim to fame, he rose to fame in 2020 because he took his lawn, frankly, what looks like a median to me from the picture, but I haven't been there. So maybe it is his lawn. He took his lawn and painted a big Trump 2020 sign on it. And so this was sort of his entry into politics. And then after Trump was defeated, he painted a big kind of like Shepard Fairey style Trump on his lawn again. And so this earned him the Trump endorsement in the race, which has obviously, I think, been hugely influential in the primary. I think what's especially interesting to me is that this guy's like pretty obviously a hardcore QAnon believer. He has denied it. However, the good folks at Media Matters who catalog these QAnon congressional candidates, there's a lot of evidence he's a QAnon 
you a non-believer. So Kelly, if you look here, here's a picture of him standing in front of his bedazzled lawn wearing a shirt with a giant Q on it. What would you say that's indicative of? I mean, I would say that's a pretty good indicator someone's a Q fan. I mean, maybe he's just an abstract fan of the letter, but this weird merch to cop. He's like, oh God, that's what that's about? Oh uh, no, I was at <laughs> next week I'm wearing my Z shirt. Like, come on. That's my take too. I mean, if you kind of want to get into the nitty gritty of it, we can think about like QAnon belief in Congress on two polls. It's also like a little rich to even give it this much nuance. But if you think on like the least affiliated with QAnon, you can think of like Lauren Boebert, who said sort of vaguely, well, I sure hope QAnon's real. Now, obviously, I think to the average person, that's a pretty shocking statement because, you know, it's about children being raped in dungeons and mass executions, what have you. On the other hand, you have Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is like so deep in the lore. You read her Facebook posts and she's like getting into the nitty gritty about like what is a Q post. She was in these kind of like canonical debates. And then maybe about in the middle here, you have J.R. Majewski, a guy who owns QAnon gear or, or owned at one point. He posted tweets with QAnon slogans. He sent a bus full of people to January 6th, though he claims he did not participate in the riot. He went on a QAnon online show. I mean, this guy, I would say he's like pretty deep in the lore. So now he's saying, oh, I'm not a QAnon guy. So however, given that he looks set to win this primary, I think it's fair to say Congress will soon get a third QAnon believer. It's great. They're really becoming their own voting block. They can have a caucus. Um, I'm looking at this guy and he's so clearly a type of guy. He's a canonical dude that I recognize from the suburbs. He's a strapping lad. Yeah, he's steeped in the lore. He's posting 18 times a day on Facebook. He's got the Q decal on his truck. I don't actually know if that's true, but he's a recognizable figure. And unfortunately, I think that's actually alluring to some voters. While he may only be Congress's third QAnon believer, he may be the first rapper in Congress. Oh, well, it's good to have representation. Because he has a rap, and I have to thank our Daily Beast colleague, Sam Brody, for cluing me into this rap. Sam only listens to the coolest tracks. I have to assume this was on Rap Caviar. But basically, he recorded, like so many others last year, he recorded a Let's Go Brandon song. And we can play a clip here from it. We stand. We stand. Divided we fall. We need to finish the wall. They want to raise all our taxes. We done with them all. A rendezvous with destiny. Take the house in 22. Just try to put a mask on me. You'll see red, white, and blue. Everything woke goes the sh- but let's go Brandon's a hit he teamed up with some other folks. He's kind of looking grumpy in a Let's Go Brandon hoodie. He has raps like, basically, his part of the rap is all about Joe Biden being senile. And so, excuse my language here, but he says, Joe's focused on ice cream while he's crapping his pants. We want our dreams and freedom. This is our last chance. Wow, those are some fiery bars there. I love how this is an emerging genre of music. It's always the same guy. He's kind of got like a grim expression. He's using about maybe one or three rhyme schemes Will, I think you have the big guy, little guy theory of rap where there's a big guy, there's a little... This one kind of has two big guys, though. Oh. Another bearded guy. Here's another line for you. You mentioned sort of... This is not exactly Kendrick Lamar here with our rhyme schemes, right? Here we go. Divided we fall. We need to finish the wall. (laughs) It's digestible, right? It's not going to score up a lot of genius points, but you could see it on an early morning radio show. I guess for me, the takeaway from this is there was a time 
where a guy like this, a guy who's singing about the president crapping his pants, there was a time where that would get a little attention, that this guy seems poised to go to Congress, that a QAnon believer would. But this guy's basically unknown outside of Ohio politics. He hasn't really gotten a lot of national attention. So it should be interesting. I think he is poised to be in Congress soon. And just the fact that there's like so many of these men and women who are Q-pilled, who are making Let's Go Brandon raps, this is sort of a new type of congressman we're going to be looking at. And there's just so many of them, I think it's inevitable that a lot more will sue me in Congress. Absolutely. They're going to sneak through the cracks because there's only so much of this Facebook detrius that you can sift through when you're researching these people. Exactly. And you know, the other thing I would say about this rap is, I think on the scale of MAGA raps we've listened to, this is not one of my favorites. People may remember the anti-vaccine song that went like, this is a war on religion. (laughs) That one was pretty good, I thought. That one was definitely in my head. This one was a little low effort, but maybe he'll get up to Congress, record some lines with like Louis Gohmert, Paul Gosar, the whole gang. (laughs) We'll make a Spotify playlist, best MAGA raps of sitting congressmen. (laughs) Okay, Kelly, you're deep in the crypto mines. You're a heavy bag holder. You're hodling till the end. Let's get our Fever Dreams Bitcoin update. All right. Oh, so deep in the mines here, somebody, and we don't know who because that's the nature of Bitcoin, just gave Alex Jones of InfoWars $2 million in Bitcoin. Listeners of the show might remember that very recently, Alex Jones declared that three of his companies are bankrupt. That comes in response to a lawsuit by parents of Sandy Hook victims. Alex Jones is trying every tactic he can to avoid paying people their justly deserved money. And he's claiming that he and his companies are basically insolvent. That would appear to cut against this new revelation that he's receiving millions in difficult-to-trace cryptocurrency. And what's funny about this is that he is far from the only far-right figure to get this kind of windfall. The SPLC, which uncovered these payments, has also found that some of the same people paying Alex Jones are paying other far-right figures. Some donors to Alex Jones have also given to groups like Defend Europa, VDARE, and American Renaissance. Other far-right streamers and personalities, we'll say, is a euphemism, like a Stefan Molyneux, have received and paid out millions of dollars in cryptocurrency. So this is a real money pot for figures who are, even in court records, trying to describe themselves as broke. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, certainly, I think this SPLC report about Alex Jones points it out at the way that Bitcoin, which is already sort of has a vibrant right wing subculture within it, has become this way for folks to get around it. I mean, I, I'm thinking of to get around the, the typical financial system. I'm thinking of Nick Fuentes, right around January 6th, this white nationalist leader received a hefty Bitcoin donation. Yeah, so it's also interesting, I think, in the Alex Jones context, because as you said, he's been shuffling all this money around to his shell companies. He is trying to avoid these Sandy Hook judgments. And yet he can get this money. And then I think presumably sort of shuffle it around and move it and hide it in whatever ways he wants. Absolutely. Yeah. It's weird because there's this tendency to describe cryptocurrency as like this insurgent, anti-authoritarian money platform. But what's so weird is that whoever paid Alex Jones, these cryptocurrency fortunes, really, they were sitting on nearly $10 million worth of Bitcoin. And that had been sitting just largely untouched for years in a Bitcoin wallet. So whoever's paying him has not only funds to spend, but funds just to sit on. 
funds that they don't even need. And last year, somebody else gave Jones a few Bitcoin payments totaling around $266,000. That person had close to $100 million in Bitcoin at the time. So Jones wants to pretend to be this persecuted underdog. He's crying for donations on his stream, but the people who are backing him are fucking flush with cash. I think what's really interesting here is this way that Bitcoin has really opened up the coffers really for the right. So you can have this in the past, perhaps these people would be funded through a nonprofit that might have to reveal their donors or even a dark money group that at least would have to have a name. But now with Bitcoin, really, you can just have a 12, 13 million dollar pot of money sitting out there that doles out these kind of like life saving donations, in this case to Infowars every so often. And we really have no way of knowing who's behind it. So I think we're already kind of this era of Peter Thiel's mysteriously funding all these different operations in the supposed new right. Now we have people handing out bitcoins to white supremacists and conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones. So I think we're entering sort of a scary new era of just completely murky and and opaque fundraising for the far right. Yeah, if I could kind of bring this back home to fringe congressional candidates. Remember Ron Watkins of Eight Coon fame is running for Congress in Arizona. And he has been begging people for Bitcoin donations, partly because his campaign is floundering. It was just revealed last month that he underreported his donations to the FEC by something like 40%, right? He was extremely opaque about how much money his campaign was pulling in. And I think it's part and parcel that this wing of the Republican Party feels completely unaccountable for the money they're bringing in. Either if they're running a campaign, they don't feel beholden to you know report the funds that they're getting. Or if they're in court and they're trying to hide money from a settlement, they can just move all these funds through dodgy crypto backdoors. And it's really hard to tell how much they have or what they're doing with it. I think it's sort of a disturbing new era and get on the Southern Poverty Law Center here for tracking this one. But it's really hard to sort of get a track of, of how widespread these payments are. All right. This week, we are speaking with Jordan Green. He is a reporter at Raw Story, where for months he has been keeping tabs on the January 6th prosecutions and some of the fringe actors emerging from those cases. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. We're joined now by Jordan Green, a reporter at Raw Story, where he covers right-wing extremism. Jordan's been doing great work on the January 6th attack and the days that led up to it. You can find him on Twitter at JordanGreenNC. Jordan, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much, Kelly. It's really an honor to be with both you and Will. I've been following your work since probably 2017, and I always feel like I'm I'm stumbling across you when I'm researching an article and I run into... It's like, Kelly, leave me alone. You know, <laughs> stay off my beat. 
So sincerely, I've really wanted to do the reporting that you all are doing and emulate you. So I look at you both as role models. Oh, oh my goodness. Right back at you. One of your recent stories we were talking about was on this podcast, we talk a lot about fan favorite eccentrics like Sidney Powell and Michael Flynn, who we now know brainstormed these schemes to overturn the 2020 election. But we're still learning about their connections to the Trump administration. And you have this really interesting new report out about a White House aide named Garrett Ziegler, who was sort of the go-between man for Trump and people like Powell. So can you tell us a little bit about Garrett Ziegler and what exactly he did? Yeah, sure. No, you're right. He is, I describe him as the conduit of in this kind of election information or slash disinformation network, just kind of ferrying information back and forth. It is definitely worth noting that Rudy Giuliani was the personal attorney for Donald Trump. So there is that relationship pre-existing. But Rudy Giuliani had this team, it's like these teams of like disinformation researchers under him dredging up all this information. So Garrett Ziegler, who's a White House aide in Peter Navarro's office, he was really crucial in kind of running some of this information up to his boss, Peter Navarro, who then passed it on to Donald Trump. And this information comes from a guy we haven't heard too much about, Michael Tremarco, who's a Giuliani associate. And so Tremarco said, oftentimes, Trump would know the information before Giuliani did, and Trump would ask Giuliani to pursue it. So yeah, I think that's kind of a nutshell description of Garrett Ziegler's role. So this is the guy who's kind of like, your story here is about this guy who's like the pipeline between the kind of zanier world of folks like Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, the mascara streaming down his face, and like getting that material into the White House proper. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good way to describe it. You know, I think this is so interesting, this story you have here, because a lot of it focuses on this meeting in December 2020. This is sort of a famous meeting where you have Sidney Powell, you have Michael Flynn, you have Patrick Byrne, the Overstock.com, the former CEO there. This is a meeting where famously Patrick Byrne in the White House scarfed down pigs in a blanket with a sort of ferocity that always sticks out of my mind. And this is the one where basically they're telling him to like overthrow the election. Yeah, seize the voting machines and rerun the elections and have the military or, or National Guard, I guess, specifically rerun the elections in the swing states. Right. I love these details, like the pigs in a blanket that come out. (laughs) They're so colorful. But Jordan, one thing that came up in your reporting was Ziegler and what do you call them? Like a crew of, quote, cyber patriots or something had this command center based out of a D.C. hotel room. And there are now a number of these like hotel room home bases where they're doing all this secret lair shit. But Ziegler was going over there like one in the morning they were saying, what kind of schemes were they believed to be working on? That is a great question. I never really have gotten to the bottom of it, to be honest, what specific information kind of was fed up through the chain. But yeah, so Garrett Ziegler, according to Tremarco, called this group the Cyber Patriots, and they were at the Westin Hotel in Arlington, Virginia. I don't know exactly who the Cyber Patriots were. I've asked Tremarco, and he said, 
that information is probably findable, but he wasn't willing to disclose it. It's great. You want to believe that these figures are totally fringe, right? And there are just tinfoil <laughs> hatters. But these are people with access to clearly a good bit of money, some kind of a all expenses, credit card, what have you, to hang out and really just like scribble conspiracy theories on the wall in D.C. for days ahead of the January yeah. 6th riot. Yeah. I mean, Tremarco is pretty wealthy. His background is in communications and finance. And so he's talked about, and Patrick Byrne has talked about, basically just pulled out his credit card and rented a block of rooms at the Westin Hotel immediately after the election. They have said that Sidney Powell worked out of those rooms before they kind of got spooked about some security issues and she decamped to Motley, as we know from reporting in the New York Times and other outlets. And Timotley being, that's Lynn Wood's plantation, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. His estate in South Carolina. Which became sort of a hub for the sort of like the election deniers movement in the aftermath of the vote. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I guess what we're learning is that there were multiple hubs. Tomotley was the most important one because Sidney Powell and Michael Flynn were there and they are kind of the preeminent figures, but then there were different hotels in the Washington, D.C. area where various conspiracy theorists and researchers were trying to trying to pull together information to that could be used to overturn the election. Well, this is totally off topic, but is Tamatli the plantation that he was trying to convert into a wedding venue? Are there multiple plantations? <laughs> well, it's interesting, right? So there's a lot of discussion about the business prospects of Tamatli. I mean, the I don't know if Linwood initially purchased Tamatli with plans to turn it into a wedding venue and like five other businesses on the property, but I think those plans possibly were sped along by the fact that he's currently being sued for owing contractors a ton of money for their work on Tamatli. So it's a little unclear whether it was always supposed to be a wedding venue or whether it was like if I was underwater on my mortgage and decided to turn my house into a wedding venue. <laughs> that kind of thing. It's great. There's already the ethical debate about whether you can have a plantation wedding. And this is just, let's just pile all the problematic stats onto one venue. Right. It's already very problematic to have a plantation wedding, but this is like the most problematic <laughs> plantation wedding you could have. Yeah. So Jordan, you've also done reporting on someone named Torre Morris. Now, this is a figure here on Fever Dreams. We always like getting into these figures who I think are kind of like omnipresent in a weird way on the right, yet the lay listener and often even reporters covering it. Like, I don't really have an entire grasp of what Tori's deal is, but she has a lot of her fingers in a lot of pots, including Fever Dreams listeners may be interested to know the Cucks Box, the famous, possibly existent right wing Roku knockoff. So if you could, Jordan, introduce us to Tori, because I think she's an interesting figure. Yeah, I mean, she might seem like a footnote, but she it's becoming more and more apparent that she plays a significant role. She was outed by the Washington Post in, I believe it was December 24th, 2020, as the quote-unquote whistleblower whose affidavit was used by Sidney Powell and two of the lawsuits seeking to overturn the election. And it turns out that the time that her affidavit was used, there was a court ruling in North Dakota that she had committed consumer fraud by raising, soliciting funds for people who are the victim of fire and then spending the funds on herself. Um, Do we know what she spent the money on? Pretty banal things like she spent it at Walmart, McDonald's and Target, places like that. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. So she purports to have this kind of intelligence background. She says that she served in military intelligence, which is 
highly questionable. But she continues to be a very successful podcaster with a large following. And also, despite being discredited, she's continued to work closely with Patrick Byrne. They're kind of going podcast together and speak on stage and different election denial events. So they have said, Patrick and Tori have said that they ran into each other in early November after the election. They've definitely worked closely during that period, but they have a really interesting story about how they met, which I think should be taken with a heavy grain of salt. But (laughs) she says that she was that Patrick was a target and kind of implying that she was surveilling him and she was working as a waitress in a restaurant in London that was her cover to surveil him. So I don't know about all of that. You're kind of hitting on what sort of the difficulty often reporting on folks like this is that is to what extent we know often these people are just totally making things up and and to what extent can even sort of the most banal things be trusted. So Tori is an interesting figure. As you said, she's kind of built a cult of personality, I think, in a way that a lot of these sort of election fraud deniers or election fraud sleuths have not. There are real life meetings of Tory fans. They have this idea that seems sort of borrowed from anti-government sovereign citizen stuff where they... mixing up the word here, but basically it's like they have this concept that you can file a sort of made up bill against your local school board, particularly if you're upset about mask requirements, that you can file this and this will force. Basically, you can sort of tie up your school board in this kind of fruitless litigation. Their big thing is doing patriot shit. That's their slogan. And so it's like they'll get together at a diner and say like, we're doing patriot shit in honor of Tory. So it's kind of this like subterranean movement, but one that when you look at it and it's like, all right, here's one meeting in Alaska and here's a meeting in Idaho and here's a meeting in California and in Florida. And it's like, I think Tori has kind of a lot of fans out there. She does to the extent that she actually attempted to run for Secretary of State of Ohio until very recently and just completely butchered all her filings, got kicked off the ballot and is now having her own like personalized stop the steal thing. So she clearly thought she had enough support to launch a political career of her own on the basis of this fandom. Yeah, she said on her podcast that she's threatened to sue over her being excluded from the ballot for not meeting the deadlines or whatever problems she had. So part of the pattern that's really interesting is like she is very litigious, but her lawsuits don't win and she doesn't prevail in her lawsuits, but it does provide kind of a fundraising cause that she can kind of turn to her listeners for support. Right. And so, okay, to that end, we've, I think in our world have always seen this kind of character as a little loopy, a little untrustworthy, but you have some good new reporting that shows how her own community perceives her. And back in, oh, December 2020, I think, she was one of the supposed sources for Sidney Powell's claims that there was massive election fraud. Tory presented herself as this military intelligence source and gave this long affidavit that became central to a Sidney Powell filing. And you've done some new reporting on what Tory's so-called friends are actually saying about her. And I just want to read a quote because it's so funny from someone you interviewed. This is an experience he had with Tory after she got caught lying in an interview. He says, quote, she gets out of the car a little panicked. She's like, I think they drugged me. I think they put something in the hand sanitizer. She claimed that all her lies were because they drugged her. So what are Tori's backstabbing friends really saying about her? Well, hmm, that's so hard to wrap your brain around. Patrick Byrne 
So the the quote that you read is from Patrick Berge, who was part of this group Team America, which comprised of Tori Morris and former InfoWars correspondent Melanie Weaver. So Patrick Berge asked Patrick Byrne to answer some questions for the book that Patrick Berge is writing. And Patrick Byrne talked about having, he said he assembled a team of people he knew from the intelligence community to interview Tori to assess her credibility. And this is after the affidavit was filed in December 2020, and that they determined that she was exaggerating and she wasn't trustworthy. She may have been involved in these intelligence agencies, but they said she wasn't trustworthy. So it's so perplexing that Patrick Byrne and Tori Morris continue to be good friends. I mean, they were on a podcast together at least like three weeks ago, as recently as that. So I don't know, you kind of have to scratch your head and ask why Patrick Byrne would continue to associate with a person like that. What? They're not incredibly trustworthy. They're not (laughs) disclosing all their private doubts about these theories. Jordan, I wanted to ask you, you're based in North Carolina and you've done a lot of coverage of local Proud Boys, including some who have resurfaced in the news. But what I like is that a lot of your reporting has forecast future Proud Boy trends, especially how Proud Boys were aligning themselves with these supposed anti-child trafficking rallies. Can you tell me what you've seen there in the past and maybe whether you see a parallel with the right's new obsession with quote-unquote grooming? Uh, yeah, well, I did cover a kind of QAnon light rally in Fayetteville, North Carolina, in it was late August 2020, and the Proud Boys kind of joined it as purported security. And at that time, I thought that was really an interesting new alliance. So, you know, I don't know if I have a lot of insight on the grooming thing, but yeah, I mean, I guess I noticed back in the late summer of 2020 that Proud Boys were latching on to a lot of these conspiracy theories about adrenochrome and child trafficking and basically the QAnon claim about elites engaging in child trafficking. So, and that's turned out to be really kind of those two cultures, the Proud Boys and QAnon are kind of fused together at this point. Yeah. When the Proud Boys show up to one of those rallies, do people on the ground like know that they're Proud Boys? Do they object to it? Or do they? does everyone just kind of go along with their presence? They start shouting out cereal brands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they definitely knew that they were the Proud Boys and this Fayetteville rally because they were in full gear. And actually they had kind of the tactical gear, the bulletproof vest that you saw on January 6th. So there was a little bit of a counter protest. There was like one woman who held a sign showing her objections and, you know, she eventually left. There was a small group of people from the Huey Newton gun club who were not armed because that's illegal in North Carolina, but they just kind of tailed along the march. But otherwise, it was not opposed. So it was like 40 Proud Boys and you saw like local GOP candidates and GOP activists. So it was an interesting right-wing coalition. One of your local Proud Boys down there, a charming fellow named Jeremy Bertino, just had his house raided, right? And to my knowledge, he hasn't been charged with anything. But Do you recall what exactly happened in that case? And can you give us a little bit of a rundown? 
Yeah, so he was, the warrant is public now, and it says that his house in North Carolina was searched in conjunction with the investigation into the Proud Boys conspiracy. It was right around the time that Enrique Tarrio was charged, so they were clearly looking for evidence to use against Tarrio. What this warrant says is that they uncovered multiple firearms So the warrant says that he could be charged with possession of a firearm by a felon because he has some criminal charges and going back several years in New York State. He has not been charged with that, and he has not been charged in conjunction with January 6th. He didn't go to D.C. on January 6th because he had been stabbed at the previous rally on December 12th. However, he is identified in the court documents. Well, not identified, but he's mentioned as, I believe he's person three. He was involved in setting up the secret Ministry of Self-Defense channels that were basically used to organize the January 6th operation. So yeah, I'm watching closely to see what happens with Jeremy Bertino. It's amazing. There were so many of these like almost trial balloon rallies, right? Where the Proud Boys would come and they'd rile people up in D.C. and they would make a mess of things. And the fact that this guy couldn't come to January 6th because he got stabbed the previous week. It's so telling of the activity they had there. Yeah. (laughs) Jordan, you've done some reporting on the people's convoys, the trucker convoys crisscrossing our nation. What are they up to these days? My understanding is they're turning back to D.C. Yeah, I haven't followed them closely, I have to admit, but I've read the same thing, that they're heading back to D.C. I did follow some live streams when they were driving through Portland, Oregon, and it appears that there were some gunshots fired from a member of the convoy. If you watched the Oreo Express live stream, you can hear popping noise, this footage of counter-protesters on an overpass. So the fact that they're heading back to D.C. is definitely concerning And I got a message from one source who's kind of inside the three percenter movement who tells me that the people who have remained with the convoy are more violent, like a lot of the more moderate people have kind of fallen away. So Yeah, the big picnic vibe has kind of died off, right? It's only the real road warriors are left now. Yeah, right. Exactly. I wish I knew what we could expect from their return to D.C., but we should try to track them closely. Do you have any sense how these people are like paying for their, what, like three months long road trip now? Are they crowdfunding? Like, what's up with that? They're clearly not being the professional truckers they claim to be. Yeah, well, I mean, it definitely would be a personal sacrifice to take the time off. And fuel is very expensive, particularly for large vehicles. So suspect that if you really are trying to make a living, that you would be, it kind of shows you the pressure that they're under. Like they want to see some results, but they're spending, if they're spending a lot of money out of pocket, then they're going to get kind of frustrated if things don't materialize. And there was a Boogaloo guy who was arrested outside of the encampment in Hagerstown, Maryland, that I reported on. And one of the interesting kind of side notes of that is there's some live stream with one of the guys who I visited the encampment and I saw this guy who was doing sounds. And then he's in this live stream more recently and he's expressing his grievances and he's talking about a guy who brought a giant flag like shipped a giant flag from indiana to maryland at a cost of like twenty thousand dollars and 
And the sound guy who's complaining is saying, this guy said he was going to get reimbursed and he's never gotten a dime. So what's going on? So there were apparently some promises like that people would be reimbursed for their expenses and that the funds apparently are not covering what they hope they would. <laughs> Just have to crowdfund a little bit harder. You're almost there, guys. Next trip to DC. <laughs> Jordan, thank you so much for joining us. This is always interesting, always disturbing. Love to hear it. Yeah, thank you so much. Really an honor to join you and take care. All right. Thanks. And now it's time for Fresh Hell, the weekly segment where we tell you what the worst people on the internet are talking about and why it is going to affect you. Okay. All right. We're back to Fever Dreams movie corner here. I'm Evil Gene Shalit here to tell you what movie is about to blow up on the right. This week, it is going to be conservative pundit Dinesh D'Souza's very heavy, very investigative new documentary, pseudo-documentary, 2000 Mules. Oh, I love farm animals. You might say cottagecore? Yes, please, but not quite, because in fact, 2000 Mules here, we're talking about ballot harvesters, ballot traffickers, the folks who stole the 2020 election, according to this documentary. So to set it up for you, there's this conservative group very into restricting voting called True the Vote. I think they've been especially active in Texas, but in the aftermath of 2020, they got into this idea where they would basically get just like gobs and gobs of consumer GPS data from your phone. And so folks like the New York Times have done investigations into how apps on your phone, they're selling your tracking data. And so you can really figure out very specifically, you can basically narrow it down so much that you can track a single person's movements everywhere. So True the Vote did this. They bought this data and they purport that it shows that they've discovered these ballot traffickers. In reality, the Washington Post's Philip Bump has done some great debunking on this. It's sort of more like they decided that if they could track people between these ballot drop boxes in various battleground states and then various political nonprofits. They decided, well, these people are ballot harvesters. I mean, in a similar way, I believe Bump uses this example at the Post, you could decide that there is a ballot harvesting operation running out of a Chipotle. And then everyone who went to Chipotle, you could say, well, I think X number of people here are ballot harvesters. And so that is sort of about how deep the argument gets in. Right. And what's so fascinating to me is this is the party of people who believe that if you get a COVID shot, they're putting a microchip in your blood so that they can track you everywhere. And they're like, oh yeah, by the way, we purchased tens of thousands (laughs) of people's uh, phone GPS data. Don't worry about that. We're talking about ballot harvesters. And I want to be specific about this term ballot harvesting because it sounds really nefarious. It reminds me of organ harvesting. And what it really means is somebody else is dropping off your ballot. So you are extremely sick with COVID and you're like, I am not in any capacity going to drop off my ballot. I'm giving it to my brother. He's going to drop it off. Or sometimes you'll have staff at nursing homes being like, okay, turn in your ballot. We'll drop it off for you. That sort of thing. It's totally legal, but it's become this straw man on the right because it has kind of a spooky name and they want to use it to allege that every harvested ballot is in some way untrustworthy. That's right. I mean, certainly in 2000 Mules, which is premiering at movie theaters across the country, has already been picked up by Trump. In 2000 Mules, I mean, this is all presented in sort of the the most nefarious way possible. There's security camera footage. There's very grainy footage. The logo of 2000 Mules sort of looks like, if folks remember, like Project Swordfish type font. It's very like hacker elite type stuff. But as you said, I mean, sometimes this stuff's all totally legal, which, you know, sort of gets into one of my my favorite things with the when you kind of get a more respectable Republican who isn't going to say like a Mike Lindell 
Mandel idea about why the election was stolen. They're not going to say, like, the computer stole it. But they're going to say, well, by stolen, we mean the state legislature changed the law. (laughs) And it's like, well, that's not really stolen, though, is it? But often, I think, when you sort of prod on that, that's what comes out. So in this case, as you said, I mean, ballot harvesting, ballot, the hot phrase now, ballot trafficking, is not really always even illegal. Nevertheless, this video purports to show the infamous 2,000 mules. It's not really clear how this even interacts with any other right-wing conspiracy theory about the stolen election. I mean, this is a real sort of like, let a 1,000 flowers or 2,000 mules bloom situation. (laughs) Because we're not tying this into Sharpie Gate in Arizona. We're not tying this in with these supposed fake ballots in Arizona or anything else. It's just kind of Dinesh D'Souza and True the Vote have cooked up their own scheme and it's really catching on. So the next time you're hanging out with family, hanging out with a deeply red-pilled relative and they say, well, I heard about the mules. This is what it's about. Yeah. And again, watch that terminology shift because it was ballot harvesting for a few years and now it's ballot trafficking. And listen, we're a very meme-steeped pod here. Ballot grooming. Ballot <laughs> grooming. <laughs> That's where it goes. Wrap my mind because this is coming amid this <laughs> panic about trafficking, right? Which half the time they're alluding to hoaxes about children being trafficked in a pizza parlor or something like that. So they're really just latching on to panicky buzzwords. And if harvesting isn't doing quite enough work, well, what about trafficking? And to your point, what about grooming? Words have no meaning. So go nuts. As far as I know, I haven't had the privilege of seeing 2000 Mules yet. But As far as I know, I mean, there's really no one who's identified as they don't say this guy is a crook, this is the leader of the mules or anything like that. And so to that extent, I think that there is kind of this vague idea of like people who are trafficking and whether that be children, whether that be ballots, whether that be immigrants, there is kind of this growing trope on the right of like nefarious traffickers of all kinds who are afoot, presumably working for the cabal. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer, and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.